It is so good to be back with you. I uh, so, saw several people. They said, hey, this is great to have you back. They said, how was your vacation? And I said, I didn't go on vacation. They said, oh, we heard you went on vacation. I said, no, we didn't. We, we went on a family trip. And those are, listen, those are not the same thing. All right. Do you understand what I'm talking about this morning? I've got four kids and, you know, all this stuff, but we had a good time. But it is so good uh, to be back with you this morning. Well, Chris gave a little disclaimer during the welcome uh, it's kind of PG-13 or those, and so some of you are kind of a little anxious, and maybe some of you brought guests, and you're just like praying, just so passionate right now, like, oh God, don't let him embarrass me, just, you know, just praying, you know, God will be a missionary, whatever you want me to do, but just, you know, I've got guests with me, and so don't let him talk about money or hell or any weird stuff from Revelation, just, you know, whatever you want me to do, God, just so, so let me just encourage you, just relax this morning, uh, we're not going to talk about any of those things, or hell or many of those things, we're just, uh, just relax this morning, because we're going to talk about sex. And so, uh, now listen, I, I want this to be incredibly practical. And so I've got all kinds of charts and diagrams and, and I got them off the Internet. So I know they're true. Uh, Matt Kyle has worked very hard this week. So he's put together some flannel graphs that we're going to bring out at, at some. We're not. We're not. All right. And I heard a pastor say one time, he said, listen, he said, if you want to grow your church, uh, he said, you've only got to preach three sermons or three topics. He said, just keep preaching over and over. And your church just explodes. He said, preach on sex. Preach on the end times and then answer the question, will there be sex in the end times? And he said, you just preach those and people will come and they'll just listen and hear that. So so listen, if you're a guest this morning, you're just thinking, I knew it. I knew these people are weirdos and there's, you know, weirdo people. And so listen, nothing weird is going to happen. I promise you that. But I would ask this this morning that if someone hands you a snake, just pass it down calmly. All right. So just. But other than that, just relax and just uh, so let me let me give a context this morning. We've been in a series on First Thessalonians. We've been walking through the series it's called Don't Quit. And the whole reason Paul is writing is Paul won these people to Christ in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And as he traveled to the next place and won more people to Christ, and that's what Paul did. They, they kind of were left standing there by themselves. They weren't standing behind Paul anymore and his authority as an apostle. And so they lived in this incredibly uh, pagan culture. Uh, and so there's just all this sexual morality going on around them. And so there was just this pressure uh, just to kind of cave in, just to fold. And their culture was pressing on them. And so Paul is writing to encourage them to say, listen, I know there's pressure. I know there's it just be easier to cave in, but be firm, steadfast. Don't quit whatever you do. And so first week we talked about don't quit for the very simple fact that someone is watching you and you can influence that person. The second week we talked about don't quit in chapter two because God can use you. And then last week, Chris talked in chapter three, uh, don't quit uh, when, when life gets hard and when trials come and all those things. And so today I want to share the fourth message. We're just in chapter four called don't quit in the battle for purity. And so the reason that we're talking about this today is simply that's where we are in the text. And that's the passage. And one of our core convictions here is simply this, is that when it comes to teaching the Bible, uh, we don't teach around tough truths. We teach through them. And so uh, but that really gets put to the test when you hit a, hit a topic like this uh, on a Sunday morning. And so, uh, so let me invite you to take your Bible. See if you haven't turned to First Thessalonians chapter four this morning uh, for the fourth message in our series entitled Don't Quit in the Battle for Purity. And so this morning, I just want to start off simply answering the question biblically. What is sex? I'm totally kidding. Just relax. All right. Everybody's like, be real. I need to do something holy. So let's just read the Bible. All right. First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse one. Paul's kind of toward turning the corner, kind of wrapping up his letter here. Chapter five, the last chapter. So chapter four, verse one, he says this. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God. 
For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, this is the heart of what he wants to say here, beginning in verses 3 down through verse 8. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel or body, in some of your translations, uh, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Well, as you read through that passage and, and uh, you, you just kind of read there, it's just black ink on white paper. There's, there's no wondering, like, is, there, is this a metaphor for some deeper meaning? Listen, he's clearly talking about sexual morality. And it was a huge part of their culture and it plagued their culture. And there was pressure for them to conform and just give in and not hold their standard and purity and all those kind of things. And so it's not a whole lot different than the culture that we live in today. One of the misnomers or myths that we live as Christ followers is this is that, well, it's so much harder to follow Christ in our current culture. As we teach this this morning, you're going to find out in this area that is simply not the case, that there is no new sin under the sun, just new ways of carrying it out. And so as we walk through this morning, he's making a passionate plea for purity. And in doing so, Paul lays out some principles in the pursuit of sexual purity. So this morning, I just want to walk you through four. Pursuing purity requires, first off and foremost, this, a core conviction that purity is God's will. Purity is God's will. Now, one of the great mysteries, if you've been in church or you've been around Christians or you've been a Christ follower for a while, one of the great mysteries or perceived mysteries is the discovery of God's will for your life. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in an office across from someone who has anxiety or wrestling, trying to wonder, is this God's will or what's God's will for my life? Is it God's will that I do this? And lots of people struggle with that. Who should I marry? What profession should you choose? How many kids should you have? Should you get a cat or should you honor God instead? Right. I mean, listen now under the banner of sovereignty. The movie is not titled All Cats Go to Heaven. I just want you to write that down somewhere in your notes. All right. But in all seriousness, this is an issue. God's will and wondering what the path is for my life and what next step I need to take. And, and those there, that's just something that people struggle with. And then to complicate matters on the issue of finding out God's will for our life, there are different schools of thought. Some people think that God only has one perfect will for your life, that this is the only job that you can take and be in the will of God. This is the only person you could have married on the planet and be in God's will. And some people have a little broader view of the will of God. They just say, hey, listen, as long as you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, as long as you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, then God will give you the desires of your heart. And so there's a lot more freedom in the choices that you can make and still be in the will of God. And that, that's where I fall, just as a side note. But there's a lot of confusion about that. And so what does that look like? So anytime that scripture comes across and it says something like this, that this is the will of God. Listen, it gets my attention because I need just like you. I need all the low hanging fruit I can grab when discovering and defining God's will for my life. And so when I come across a passage that says this is the will of God, I take note. I sit up in my chair. I listen because I know this is not something that I have to pray about. This is not something I have to wonder about. This is not something I have to seek counsel about. It's just something I have to choose whether or not I'm going to obey this command. And so that's exactly what he starts off here in verse 3. This is the will of God. What's he say in verse 3? Look again. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So he kind of takes those two thoughts and combines them together. 
He says this is a, the phrase. He makes a, a pause there after that with the punctuation there of the colon and then describes what that sanctification in the area of purity looks like in verses three through seven. But he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, sanctification is a word uh, that we call Christianese. Like, like it's a word that if you've not grown up in church, you haven't spent a lot of time in church or, or around Christians or those kind of things. And, and sanctification is not a word like in our culture that is uh, freely shared and people talk about all the time. And so if you went to your work tomorrow and someone stopped by your office, you're at the water cooler or wherever you're at, in the locker room, and someone just said, what would you do this weekend? And you just said, I had some lovely, lovely times of sanctification. Listen, two words are going to come to their mind if you say that. Magic brownies, all right? Listen, that, they're just thinking, what, what are you talking about? You're weird. And so if that's a word, you're like, what is that? Listen, sanctification is just a big Bible word that simply means this. Is that sanctification is the process that from the time a person receives Christ all the way until the time they get to heaven, God expects us to grow and be conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He said, what does that mean? It means that our attitudes and actions should more closely resemble the heart of Jesus. And that never stops. Listen, the Bible teaches progressive sanctification. That never is supposed to stop up until the point that you go to heaven. And so from the very point that I get saved, God expects me to grow and to be conformed and transformed and all those things. And so he says, this is the will of God. That you pursue that, that you become transformed, that you become more and more like Jesus. And in this area of purity, this is what it looks like. And so that's what verses 3 through 7 are all about. Now, some of you may be sitting here and thinking, listen, God wants us to be more like Jesus, but, but Jesus never was married. And, and so what does he know about the subject to him? And like, what could Jesus teach us about purity? Like he was never married. And so, I mean, you, what does he know? Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. Let me read it from the New Living Translation. It says this, this high priest and in Hebrews, that's talking about Jesus, who's a better priest. And that's the whole theme of Hebrews. But here's what it says. This high priest, Jesus of ours, understands our weaknesses. Now, listen to this part. For he faced all the same testings or temptations that we do. Yet he did not sin. Some of your translation says he was tempted in all points, yet he sinned not. Now, I want you to think about this. There's a little mystery about Jesus' life growing up, right? Like we, we know kind of the birth story and some of the things that took place up until he kind of was like a toddler and, and like we decorate around that around Christmas and, and all of our manger scenes are not theologically accurate. But that's a whole other sermon. But anyway, so we kind of know like what Jesus was doing for a few years. And then we look like, where's Jesus, right? Like what's he doing? And where, where, what, you know, where, where do you go to kindergarten at? And what was it like? You know, what, what was that like? And we don't, we kind of pick up and we find Jesus at the age of 12 and he's wandered off from his parents. and They're looking for him and they find him uh, teaching in the temple. And then we don't hear anything about Jesus until like the age when he starts his public ministry at 30 years of age. And then he ministers for three and a half years until his uh, crucifixion. So that's what the most of account of Jesus's life is that about what, what between the ages of like 13 and 29. Like what happened? Like, what was he doing? What was it like in Jesus' house? And what did he struggle with? And was he a normal kid and a teenager and all these things? Well, listen, we don't have time to go into Let me just say this this morning. That as a person being fully God, but yet fully man, that between the ages of 13 and 29, living under the Roman culture, which permitted everything, everything, sexual immorality, under the banner, as long as it didn't threaten their rule. Listen, they permitted anything to go on. As a young man and a teenage boy living in that culture, when the Bible says he faced all the same testings that we do, you could be sure that that was a part of it, temptation towards immorality. And so he knows everything what it's like to be tempted and still live with a pure heart. 
and pure motives and pure actions and all of those things. Now, I've been preaching here and, and I've been using the word purity. We've been talking about purity and, and uh, as opposed to the word uh, virginity. And let me, let me just tell you why this morning. It's because there are two different things. You understand that? Virginity is a term that deals with a function of the body. Purity is a term that deals with a function of the mind. Virginity is a technicality at times. Purity is a mindset. Virginity asks the question, how far can I go and still wear the label? Purity asks the question, how close can I get to the heart of God? There are two totally different things. Purity is the principle and virginity is the overflow of the principle. And purity is what's being defined here in, in the text. It's exactly what he's talking about. You say, well, how do you know that? Let me just dig down just a little deeper this morning in verse three. And I want you to look there with me this morning because I want you to settle the issue that purity is what's at stake. That the battle for this whole thing we're talking about immorality is not in this area. Listen, it's in the mind that's pure. And so what's he saying in verse three? I just want you to look at two words a little deeper that kind of seal the deal. In verse three, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. I get that. What does that look like? That you should abstain from sexual morality. And I just want to focus on two words this morning. The first word is the word simply abstain. Now, how many of you have ever heard someone who's not a Christian or they used to go to church, they don't go anymore. And, and this was kind of their synopsis on the whole Christian life. Here, here's kind of how they sum the whole thing up. Well, Christianity is a lot of do's and don'ts. and There's a lot more don'ts than there are do. How many of you have ever heard somebody level that charge, right? Like it's just rule following, and rule keeping, all those things. That, that's simply not true. Did you know this, as a matter of fact, that the word abstain is only used seven times in the New Testament. Seven times in the whole New Testament, the word abstain is used. And so what's the context it's used? It's used in the book of Acts three times, and it's referring to temporary restrictions for those particular believers that, that were lifted. It's used in the book of 1 Timothy, uh, referring to false doctrine. It's used uh, in 1 Peter, referring to abstaining from worldly lusts. And listen, that can be affluence, that can be a sex, that can be uh, just anything that, that makes our heart long for that greater than it does for God. That's just what lust is. And then it's used twice here in 1 Thessalonians. And so we don't see the word abstain very often, about seven times in the entire New Testament. But each time that we see it, here's two things I want you to understand. When the word abstain is used, there are two things that are always true whenever it's used in the New Testament. The first one is this. It's always the command of God. Always. You say, what's the difference between a command and a non-command? It's real simple. Let me just make it as simple and practical as I can. You don't have to pray about commands. Like, I'm always amazed, like when I talk to folks and there's some commands in Scripture where God says we should do this, we should do that. And I just, you know, some people, we talk and they just, well, you know, Pastor, I'm just, I'm praying about that. Like, I'm just, I'm kind of rest, I'm kind of wondering what I'm going to do about that. And, and God, I'll get back with you later and I'll let you know where I land on that. Listen, when it comes to a command, you don't have to pray about command. The only question related to a command is, am I or am I not willing to obey? And so every time you see the word abstain used in Scripture, it's always in the form of, of a command. Here's the second truth. And every time you see it used in Scripture, it's simply this. It's an absolute prohibition. It's an absolute prohibition towards whatever it's saying abstain from. Don't get involved in any false doctrine. Don't get involved in any worldly lust. Don't get involved in any sexual immorality. It's always a complete prohibition. You say, I'm not totally convinced of that. And that, that sounds a little legalistic and those kind of things. Listen, the original Greek word that's translated abstain in our English Bibles, here's what it means at the original language. Here's exactly what it means. It means to hold off from. Listen to this. It means to distance oneself from. It means to have nothing to do with. 
You see, when you're abstaining, it's total separate. It's not dabbling. It's not flirting. It's not how close can you get to the line. It literally means the answer simply is this to hold off, to distance oneself from, to have nothing to do with. And so listen, that one word and its true meaning in the original language answers clearly and completely the question that's been asked by every teenage boy on the planet. How far can I go? You know what the text says? Remove myself completely from it. Have nothing to do with it. And so the question is, 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 is a mute question because the text answers it so, so clearly. Have nothing to do with. Distance yourself from it. How close can I get? Not close at all. That's what the word means. Well, I think you can do this and God's okay with that, but I don't want to cross these kinds of lines. You know what the book of Proverbs says? It says, who among us can take hot coals to his chest and not get burned? That's what the book of Proverbs says. And in this area of sexual morality, listen, there's no one among us who can take hot coals to his chest and not get burned in some way, shape or fashion. And so the question is, how close can I get the answer? Not my answer. Listen, the answer from the scripture is to distance yourself, to have nothing to do with. It's exactly what it means in the scripture. Now, but the crafty mind of the male sinner is saying right now, well, abstain from what? Like you just talking about sex or like but these other things before that, those are OK. Or this, like abstain from what? Kyle, would you bring out those flannel graphs? Would you just, no, I'm totally, listen, I'm totally just relaxed. Totally. Listen, there's a better thing. That, listen, let's, let's just look at the Bible and find out. OK, no need for a flannel graph. Let's look at verse three again. Here's what he says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that look like in this area? That you should abstain, totally distance yourself from, have nothing to do with what that means, abstain from sexual immorality. And so what is he talking about there in immorality? Like, is he just talking about sex or is he talking about anything under that banner? Is he, like, what is exactly is he talking about? The word immorality is the Greek word porneia. And so it's pretty easy to see. That's where we get our English word pornography. And the word porneia in the scriptures when it's used is a broad and encompassing word describing every kind of sexual activity outside the context of marriage as defined by God in scripture. And so it covers the activity, adultery and pornography, just anything else that's not in the confines of sex in the context of marriage. And so it says any activity, anything in that direction that does not fit that definition is clearly it's immorality. It says you should distance yourself completely from it. Anything. So many times we just draw different lines, do we not? And I'm not being listless. List, I'm just preaching the text. Well, I know that this is off limits, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm just going to I don't think God minds if I see that or I'm mature enough to handle that or those kinds of things. Listen, do you understand that when you take something that's intimate and you share it as public, it's no longer intimate. And so God says, listen, that the, the, the keys to my heart are through, the, through my eyes and through my ears. Psalms talks about that. And so he says, distance yourself totally Totally from it. Have nothing to do with it is exactly what the word describes. Any kind of immorality is what the word pornate means in those lists. Well, Paul doesn't give specifics or details, but he just gives that broad. Why does he give listen? Because in different cultures, in different times, in different seasons, in different centuries, in different places, listen, those sins will be carried out in different. I mean, could you imagine in Paul's mind when he's writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the explosion of, of immorality through the Internet? He had no idea when he's writing these words. But I don't care what culture you're living in. I don't care what, what group you're in. I don't care what technology or absence of technology you have access to or shows or any of those kinds of things. Listen, the word means to hold off from, to distance yourself from, to have nothing to do with. 
And so it doesn't matter what environment, and guess what? The command never changes. And so he's saying abstain from all forms of sexual immorality. And Scripture teaches and gives examples that sect is a gift to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, and the standard for anything else is purity. Well, that's the foundation, and so let me just, everything else is an overflow from there, and so we're just going to kind of hit the highlights from this point forward. Pursuing purity also requires not only the core conviction that purity is God's will, verse 3, but it also requires intentional growth in self-control. we find that in verse 4. Look what he says. He says, each one of you should know how to possess his own vessel, or some translations say body, in sanctification and honor. Sanctification and honor. Paul says that we should control our bodies as opposed to letting our bodies control us. He says that's the whole battleground. You say, well, listen, that was easy in Paul's day. He didn't have the Internet. He didn't watch TV where every commercial had some scantily clad person. He didn't have romance novels. He didn't have any of those things. So it's easy for Paul. But in our culture, that's a totally unrealistic thing. Let me just walk you through a little bit of Paul's culture that he's writing these words in. Paul's culture, uh, Thessalonica was a major seaport where sailors and visiting merchants brought, uh, came in just transient. And so all kinds of prostitutions, they came in and prostitution took place. and They would go back out. So just all the time in those major seaports. On top of that, uh, the Greek religion that they practiced sacred prostitution complete with temple prostitutes. And so if you went to the prostitutes of those pagan culture that day, there were women sitting out there. Their whole job were, were temple prostitutes. You say, well, what in the world? Why do you need that at church? Because what they would do is this. They taught that whatever deity that prostitute represented, that when you engaged in immorality with them, then you were communicating with that deity transcendentally. I, don't, I didn't say that right, but you know what I mean. Amen. And, there was, and so for them, it was, it, was a part, it was a part of their worship in that Greek culture. And so listen, they didn't have to get on the Internet. They went to church for immorality. And so Paul knew exactly what he was writing about and exactly the culture that was living. It was worse than our culture today, if you can believe that. And so Paul says, listen, if there's any hope in the battle for purity, if there's anything, you have to learn to control your bodies, not let your body control you and what you do. You have to grow in self-control. And you say, let's eat. Like, how do you do that? Let me just give you two practical quick things. First off is simply this. You start with the core teaching that's found in Romans 6, chapter 12, that teaches your physical body belongs to God and is to be used to honor Him. Romans chapter 6, verse 12, he's talking about not using our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, rather, but as instruments of righteousness that honor God. And so the fundamental core conviction of this is that my body doesn't belong to me. If I'm a follower of Christ, my body belongs to God and it's to be used as an instrument of righteousness. And so guess what? Any time that I give my body away to someone when it doesn't belong to me in the first place, that would be under the banner of immorality. And any time that I seek to use someone else's body for my own selfishness, listen, I'm taking something that doesn't even belong to me. That was actually intended for a follower of Christ that the Holy Spirit resides in to be used as an instrument of righteousness for God. And so you first start off with a fundamental conviction that your physical body belongs to God and is to be used to honor Him. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. What else do you do? Here's the second thing. What flows out of that desire is to let the Holy Spirit control you by letting the Word of God dwell in you. 
When the Bible talks about being spirit filled or controlled by the spirit or walking in the spirit, all those kind of phrases all the time. Listen, a parallel truth or the same thing is let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom and all the right. And so when the scripture talks about that, those are parallel things. How does the spirit of God reside in me? How does the spirit of God control me? It's at the direct level proportionally that the word of God dwells in me. Those are parallel truths on the same track. And hear me this morning. You will never you will never live under the power and control of the Holy Spirit in any area of your life, let alone this one, without the Word of God dwelling in you richly. And so the key is this, is that sexual morality is an issue of the heart, and so it always begins in the mind. And so how do I guard myself against that? By renewing my mind around the truth of God's Word. That's why we're always preaching, get in the Word, meditate on the Word, memorize the Word. Why? Because that's where the battle starts. And if you want your body to be used for the glory of God in this area of incredible temptation, it starts off not in the body, but in the mind. That's why Romans 12, 2 says, if you want to change your life, then renew your mind. Pursuing purity also requires this. It requires an awareness of purity's power on our testimonies. Purity's power in our testimonies. And Paul is just leaning into them. He said, I know that, listen, I know that even at church there's temple prostitutes. I know you're living in a, in a Roman culture that just, it's just, it's immoral. But despite all of those things, don't quit. Because one of the things that will distinguish you as those belonging to me is your commitment to purity in an incredibly impure culture. It's, it'll be a shining light in the darkness of your culture. Where does he say that? At? Verse five. What's he say? He says, control your bodies in verse four, the way that you may honor God. Verse five, not or in contrast, in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. He's saying if you want to walk the walk, if you want to back up and give credence to your testimony, then this is one of the areas that will happen in, in the area of purity. Pastor and author Tim Keller, great scholar, great teacher. He said the following quote about the early Christians that caused them to stand out. And I quote, here's what he said. He said the early Christians were living out their faith in a culture of pagan people who gave no one their money and everyone their body. While the early Christians, in turn, gave everyone their money and no one their body. That's one of the ways they were known, that the culture around them gave no one their money and everyone their body. And the early church and Christians were known as distinct, set apart, sanctified. Why? Because they gave everyone their money and no one their body. And it made them stand. Paul says, it's one of the things that separates you from unbelievers. Let me tell you something. Two thousand years later, that truth has not changed. But in this highly immoral, sexually energized culture that we live in. When a person takes a stand counterculture and says, listen, my body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. I'm going to use it for his righteousness. And so I'm committed to purity because of that. It will get you noticed in this culture. It will be one of the things that sets you apart as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I still remember, listen, I still remember from high school. The strongest testimonies that I remember were those who were committed to purity because of their devotion to Christ. And I still remember some of those people's names 20 years later. Pursuing purity lastly requires understanding that sexual sin is against God and man. What's the big deal? We're adults. Consensual. What, what, what's the big deal? Here's what he says. Verse 6. Look what he says. No one should take advantage of him to defraud his brother in this matter. 
That's how the Bible describes it. When you engage in sexual morality with someone else, it talks about defrauding someone else. You know what defrauding is? It's, it's deceiving them, taking something that unrighteously uh, that does not belong to you in the first place. It's defrauding them is what it describes it as. And so is it, is it hurting anyone else? Yeah, it's defrauding them is what Scripture talks about. And in the battle for purity, listen, it's taking something that doesn't belong to you that cannot be given back once it's been taken. He says, you're defrauding them. Their body belongs to God, doesn't belong to you. It's a vehicle to honor him. And you're taking something that's not yours. But not only are you defrauding someone else and sinning against them. Scripture says you're sinning against God. Look at verse eight, what he says. He says, therefore, he who rejects this, what? All this teaching in verses three through seven about immorality. He who teaches this or does, rejects this does not reject man, but God. And so if you hear this morning, like, you know what, I listen, I, I, this is your job, it's your, your pastor, you have to say those things, but I, I'm not living that way and I'm rejecting that or that's just position of your church or your denomination. So I'm just totally rejecting you and your church. Listen, you're not rejecting me at all. Verse eight says you're not rejecting anyone, but God himself. You say, well, what if I don't care? What if I don't feel like I am defrauding someone else? What if I feel like we're enjoying it? What if I don't feel like I'm defrauding God? That you're just being legalistic. What are the consequences of living that way? Listen, verse six, what does it say? That no one should take advantage of it and defraud his brother in this matter. The word defraud means to use selfishly or greedily for my own gain. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. What does that mean? What does that look like? Listen, I don't know, but I don't want to find out. Now, I'm just going to guess here, and you can just, this is totally my opinion, but according to what Romans chapter 1 talks about, here's my guess. What that means is this, is God will eventually just give them over to the consequences of their own lust. God says, you want that more than you want me? Have at it. But here's all the consequences as well. Their lives will be characterized by addictions and diseases and broken hearts and fractured families. I want to close this morning with a video clip that I first saw a few years ago. And it's fitting in light of what we've talked about in the Scripture, because listen... All of us are bent towards this type of sin. And, and so when you teach on purity, so many people struggle and, and get ensnared in it that you can just leave and just incredibly racked with guilt. And that's not my heart this morning. So let me, let me just share this video with you this morning. Oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it. Do it. And I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what, honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was... Um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip. And you, right? And so I'm just thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do, not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose! 
That's the point of the gospel that Jesus wants the roads. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. My guess is that for some of you in the battle for purity, you feel like a broken rose. A little damaged. Some of the petals are missing. And the others aren't quite as bright as they should be. There's a lot of shame. And you look at your life and you think, who, who would want this? Listen, here's the good news. Jesus does. And no matter how broken and unworthy and unredeemable the rose of your life looks like in this area, Jesus still wants the rose. And you don't have to leave today with guilt. You can leave transformed by grace. And I'd love to introduce you to grace this morning. And His name is Jesus. I invite you to bow your heads if you would.